folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visubview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-B-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at The Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, The Farm Podcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He is a sometimes progressive activist, labor organizer, and a longtime parapolitical researcher. Folks, I give you guys Steve Kopeski. Steve, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. It's great to be here, and uh, thanks for letting me come on your show. Absolutely. All right, folks, we've got an interesting subject for you all on this outing. Jimmy Hoffa, the legendary labor organizer. This guy has been the butt of many jokes involving the goalposts at the old Giants Stadium. But beyond his mysterious 1975 disappearance, Hoffa is a little remarked upon these days. And that's a pity because his legacy is still very much with us. So we're going to give you guys a crash course on all things Hoffa, including parapolitical intrigues related to drug trafficking and Glonio, and most especially, why he still matters today. And there's even a Sovereign Order in St. John appearance in this one. So you got that to look forward to, if nothing else. On that note, let us start the show. So first off, Steve, you told me you've been researching this stuff since you were 13. So what got you started at such a young age, if you don't mind me asking? Um, really pretty organically. I think uh, just as being like a kind of Midwestern kid, uh, I think I just was fascinated by organized crime and uh, stuff like James Bond, stuff like that. And um about at the age of 13 or actually it might have even been 12 i stumbled upon the kennedy assassination or kennedy assassination conspiracy theories rather and um i was watching like a documentary or something it was on the history channel and it just like it was like the, the combination of organized crime and espionage and all that stuff and i just thought like what the hell like this is everything that i'm interested in um and I just kind of hit the ground running from there. I think I even did like a report about it in English class one year in middle school. Um, so it just pretty much always stayed with me. Um, 
going back, you know, years and years like that, um, I think I've been exposed to like a lot of the different types of conspiracy culture that uh, has kind of exploded now all over the place. Um, you could probably relate to this being, you know, interested in these things for, you know, a prolonged period of time. You kind of start to see uh, recycled things, you know, come and go. Um, funny enough, you and I off the air, we had mentioned the Franklin cover up a little bit. Uh, I remember reading that book. Um, and uh, it's funny now because when I look at Q and I, and I'm, I'm really shocked nobody, or I don't think anybody has made this comparison. It's the Franklin cover up is kind of like the, it's like reverse QAnon. Has, has, has anybody ever made that uh, connection before? I'd be shocked if they didn't. I can't be the only one. I mean, probably. I mean, I'm not aware of it, but yeah, I can see what you're kind of getting at with that. But please continue. <laughs> yeah, no, just that. So uh, no, I just kind of think back on that now. We're like, you know, 12 years ago, you know, I can't think of a single person knowing what like MK Ultra was, you know, just like in the mainstream. I remember a few years ago at work, uh, there was like a young lady, maybe like 19 or 20, and she was like telling me about MK Ultra, And I was thinking like, how the hell do you know about that? <laughs> like, where would you have come across that? Uh, and that was, yeah, about the time, about, yeah, 2015, 2016, that stuff started. Stranger uh, Things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, str yeah. Stranger Things. Yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like what got a lot of people interested in MK Ultra. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, I forgot about that one. I, I actually never watched that show. I you only really need to see the first season. Trust me. Oh yeah, I'll take. I, yeah, okay. I'll take your word for it. Well, all right. Let's get into the matter of hand here. So mm -hmm. we'll start with the basics. What is Jimmy Hoffa's origin story? Uh, so Hoffa, I think one of the things that kind of is interesting to me, at least, um, is I think a lot of times we. Maybe it's not so common anymore, but uh, we like to think that there's like a certain type of a bad guy, but he's like your bad guy. Um, you think, yeah, he's, you know, maybe doing some evil things, but he, you know, he's, you know, he's doing the evil things for us. Um, uh, I don't think that's actually a very realistic trait that a lot of people have. I think uh, there's certain politicians that people project that onto. I think they're sorely mistaken, but um Hoffa, if there's one figure in history, uh, in American history at least, um, I think he would be the closest thing to it. Um, his origins are really pretty organic. Uh, he was born in Indiana in a coal mining area. Um, his father died, uh, which I don't believe even to this day anybody actually had a reason for what ended up killing his father in all likelihood it was probably some type of toxic poisoning from working in the coal mines <clears throat> after the death of their father the family moved from indiana to detroit right about as the time the great depression was setting in at a time when detroit was really exploding with a lot of organized crime elements it was i think at the time probably one of the most violent cities in america <clears throat> there was an uh it's an amalgam of different organized crime groups. There was uh, the, the Polish gang, the Lizards. There was the more famous, uh, the, the Purple Gang in Detroit, the uh, Jewish gangsters. Um, and, of course, there was the Italian-American mafia, the La Cosa Nostra. So Hoffa, in his teens, he drops out of school. He starts trying to find work where he can. Eventually, he was uh, lucky enough to get a job at Kroger's, which is a um, 
kind of like a Midwestern uh, grocery store chain. He works as a dock worker unloading crates and boxes. Um, and it's a pretty inspirational story, I will say, his first ever experience with organizing. Um, he tells the story in his, in his own autobiography, which is very interesting, if anyone is interested in this aspect of labor history or just parapolitics in general. Um, Hoffa, the autobiography by <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa is actually worth checking out. It's pretty interesting. But um, he tells the story of a uh, pretty brutal shop foreman that um, they all had had enough of. And basically, they all decided that they were going to form a, a strike where they uh, refused to unload crates of strawberries. <clears throat> The key point in that being that the strawberries would start to rot if you know they were left out too long. Um, so that was really his first entry into uh, labor and labor uh, organizing. The uh, I think a lot of people today, I'm sure, I'm sure some people are aware, but back in the day, violence was really pretty common with these types of things. Um, the companies would hire goons and strike breakers and thugs to <clears throat> beat up striking workers. Um, one of the things that I'm sure we'll touch on kind of throughout this is um, organized crime's role. Um, most people today associate organized crime with being on the side of the unions. Um, uh, for the most part, up until the 30s and 40s, organized crime had actually been on the side of the employers. <clears throat> I think uh, we've done work on the uh, the uh, the Black Legion uh, a while back, didn't you? Uh, yes, I did. Well, I had a show. Uh, one of my guests, Lester, came on to discuss yeah. the Black Legion. It's not really like a topic that I'm an expert in, but yeah, I did yeah. a little bit. Yeah, it's um pretty interesting. I, I want to say it, it was the Dupont family that uh, I think it at least. Uh, contributed some financing to that group as far as their anti-union um activities um i was actually i've i've been searching for any kind of connection with jimmy hoffa having any kind of connection or dealings with the black legion since they were so detroit oriented um i'm pretty shocked that i can't find anything though but anyway yeah, it would definitely be interesting to know i'm i'm kind of reminded too of uh, the situation in New Orleans uh, towards the late 19th uh, century. This was a lot of people don't realize this, but the uh, the Italian mafia, the first real yeah. hold it had in the United States was actually in New Orleans and not yes. NYC, yes. as a lot of people think. And uh, from very early on, they were used by capital uh, as a means of controlling the dock workers who had a tremendous amount of power because like you're saying you know and especially going back into this era the late 19th century uh there's no refrigeration right so you have yeah. these ships coming in from central america you know bringing in bananas and all this other good stuff and obviously there is a limit on how long this stuff can be on the boats before it starts to rot and spoil so if the dock workers mm. threaten to strike these companies would lose a lot of money very quickly mm -hmm. That was what really spurred the embrace of the mafia by capitalists in New Orleans because they saw them as a way of uh, keeping the dock workers in line effectively. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, the New Orleans connection and the docks. Uh, I imagine probably a little later we probably will touch on more of the um, <clears throat> deep politics that goes along with that. 
Well, so how did Jimmy Hoffa first become involved with the Teamsters then? So um, Actually, the Teamsters was first, first. Can you explain to us what the team? I mean, I know what the Teamsters are, but just for those uh, the people listening to this who may not be familiar with them, give us a kind of quick rundown of the Teamsters and then how Hoffa got became involved with them. Sure. Uh, so yeah, it's the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Uh, Teamster, I guess, is actually an old-fashioned word for uh, someone that drives like a like a, a wagon. So like uh, driving. If you look at the Teamsters logo, it's like a horse. So yeah, it's like a wagon delivery driver. Um, and today, for the most part, or actually pretty much throughout the 20th century, uh, Teamsters are mostly associated with trucking and truck drivers, delivery drivers. Um, sometimes warehousemen and sometimes other things but uh they're primarily a truck drivers union um which the important part of that is that pretty much most of the commerce in america uh relies on trucks so uh being able to have your finger on that um is a pretty big deal which we can get into some more of the uh significance there well the teamsters at that time i mean they were not really a big union at that time uh, people today, perhaps they've heard of the AFL-CIO. Um, it's a, a coalition of labor unions in North America. Uh, it had actually been two different organizations. There was the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, and the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, anyone who's not super familiar with how unions work, um, there's an old-fashioned term. I think it's maybe a little more relevant today in Europe, but uh, it was what they would call craft unions. Uh, and the craft unions, I guess, to put it in just pretty basic terms, is it was almost like a specialty. If you like were exceptionally good at a particular trade, you would qualify to be in a craft like the, union. Uh, the Stonemasons Guild, for instance. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um and uh, the craft unions were mostly affiliated with the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. Um, they traditionally had a more conservative bend to them. Um, and now to contrast that with the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, they advocated what's called industrial unionism, which is pretty much what we have in America today. Uh, it basically means again, in pretty basic terms, I'm sure a labor historian could school me on some things, but basically it just means uh, if you're, your job is a union shop, then pretty much everybody joins the union. Um, uh, so at that time, the CIO was kind of the more radical of the two. I think, I, like I said earlier, the AFL was a little more conservative in its outlook. The CIO was much more <laughs> radical. Um, mostly affiliated with uh, socialists and communists. Um, the um, When Hoffa, when they organized, uh, they had started their own union actually for a while. And I, I can't remember how it was, but uh, basically a Teamsters organizer invited them into the union. I've never really read a whole lot of definitive parts about how he got into the union, but... Um, yeah, long story short, yeah, the Teamsters basically absorbed up the union that they formed at Kroger's. How about the syndicate? Do you know when the relation started there? One of the, uh, an interesting book that had come out, uh, actually not long after Hoffa first disappeared, is a book called Desperate Bargain by an author named Lester Valley. And he, um, he paints a portrait early on in that book that it was around this time uh 
there was a, um, in Michigan at the time, there was kind of like a conflict between AFL unions and CIO unions. Uh, the CIO being a little more radical and interested in kind of organizing everybody. They were kind of sweeping through the towns, trying to agitate and get the workers to come in with the CIO. Uh, they were called the CIO Raiders. <clears throat> the Teamsters, having been affiliated with the AFL, uh, they decided to kind of retaliate. And I do mean like literally retaliate with violence. Um, at this time, this is about when Jimmy Hoffa first reaches um, reaches some kind of an agreement with the uh, organized crime element in Detroit. Uh, primarily, most sources link it to a gangster named Santo Perón and another gangster named Angelo Mele. <laughs> So a lot of people trace it to that. Um, it would be sometime around the 30s, 1937, the other significant part of, uh, another significant detail on this part of Hoffa's story would be <clears throat> before he met his wife, um, Josephine, who was actually, uh, Hoffa was actually by pretty much every account across the board, was a very devoted family man. Um, and actually really really pretty puritanical in his own personal life. He didn't drink or smoke or anything. Um, there's really only one other known relationship that he had. It was with a woman named Sylvia Pagano. <clears throat> she also went by Sylvia Paris. And uh, to put it pretty plainly, I guess she was something of a mafia mall. She was from Kansas City. After he had become involved with the Teamsters, after the Teamsters had pretty much absorbed the union that him and his co-workers had made at Kroger's, because of his promise, he was uh, traveling around a little bit. And uh, at some point, he does uh, meet this woman, Sylvia Pagano. She was had had a relationship with a, uh, I would almost call him a super gangster. We'll talk about him more a little later. Uh, a Sicilian-born gangster named Frank Coppola, or Frankie Three Fingers Coppola. Uh, he had lost, or what he says is he had lost two fingers on his hand from a shotgun uh, misfiring. Um, and Coppola had also been involved in the Detroit rackets. Um, so it was somewhere around this kind of amalgamation of Santo Perón, Angelo Mele, and Frankie Coppola that Hoffa was able to come to this agreement that if you help me out kicking the CIO Raiders out, then I'll basically. It'll be a mutual benefit for us. Take us through Hoffa's rise to power in the Teamsters. In Michigan, his home base was a local 299 in Detroit. In 19, I want to say it was 1952. Hoffa had basically, he had shown a lot of prominence as an organizer. Hoffa was only about five foot five. I think some people even say he was maybe five four. So I guess you could say he definitely had that little man complex. But right off the gate, he was really pretty fearless. But I don't know if that had something to do with his associations with organized crime or if it was just he had learned from an early age to fight for everything. Um, he had basically just shown a lot of promise. Um, there's an interesting side note, because um, when he was early on in the Teamsters, they sent him to uh, Minnesota to help with a problem with uh, the trucking industry up there where he was able to connect with a um a relatively famous uh socialist uh, and activist uh he's better known probably to labor historians but his name is uh, Farrell Dobbs who's a member of a uh, Trotskyist uh 
political sect. And um, he kind of uh, seemed to mentor Hoffa on some type of level about union organizing, uh, which I really, I only point this part out because um, uh, Hoffa definitely was not a socialist. Um, as a matter of fact, in his autobiography, I think the direct quote is, I've never met a socialist that wasn't a screwball. Uh, he says that the problems of uh, capitalism can work themselves out on their own. Um, but I think he had this combination of kind of this labor radicalism, talk to him from people like Farrell Dobbs, and then also just this kind of rugged individualist, you have to take action yourself. So uh, in 1952, Hoffa basically works his way up to be becoming elected uh, the vice president of the international at a time when the president was nominated as a guy named Dave Beck, who was a Seattle teamster. Um, now this is where a lot of the organized crime stuff actually starts to come into full play as before where it was just help getting gangsters to help strikes and stuff. The Detroit partnership, which is the Detroit organized crime family, it's called the partnership, kind of like how uh, the Chicago mafia is called the Chicago outfit. The partnership had um, pretty historical ties with uh, the New York City gangsters. Um, I want to say it was through Frank Coppola, Frankie Three Fingers Coppola, that uh, Hoffa meets a another relatively famous gangster. Students of organized crime will know him as Johnny Dio. Um, there's a pretty interesting picture of johnny dio usually if you google him it was uh, taken at uh, i think it was, uh, at a uh, court hearing where dio uh, he's got a cigarette hanging out of his lips and he's just got the scowl on his face uh, i think that kind of personifies him he's a pretty rough guy um <clears throat> dio was um there was kind of a a, a plan that hoffa had uh come up with with Dio where uh, they were going to make um, kind of like phony locals. Uh, a local is like a an office for a union. So, you know, uh, the union that I'm in is the local one um, just at my job. Uh, so like, you know, in your city, if there's a Teamsters local, it could be, you know, Teamsters local 682 or, you know, so it's just the individual offices um, for those who didn't know that. <clears throat> uh, in New York City, uh, Hoffa and Johnny Dio came up with this plan to um, – basically make uh, fake locals that only existed on paper uh, to install delegates that would basically be in Hoffa's side uh, to kind of create a power struggle to unseat Dave Beck for when that time came. Do you want to get into why the Kennedys were so obsessed with getting Hoffa? So uh, the Johnny Dio thing is significant here because this is kind of where we're going to get the entry of Bobby Kennedy. An incident had happened where there was a uh, labor columnist in New York City uh, whose name was Victor Reisel. And he hosted a, uh, or he wrote a column where he was, uh, he was a labor economist and a labor journalist. Um, that actually used to exist. Unions were much more relevant in people's minds back then. Um, and he was kind of known, he, he almost got swept up a little bit with like the Red Scare uh, in the 50s. Um, but he was kind of, I guess he would fashion himself to be a muckraking journalist, and he was very intent on chasing the organized crime elements out of uh, the, the unions in New York City. Um, as a matter of fact, actually, Ronald Reagan had been uh, interviewed by Victor Reisel at one point, talking about his past associations with uh, 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 socialism and uh, from Reagan's time when he was a president of SAG, the Actors Union. Anyway, 
Victor Reisel basically one night he was ambushed and he had acid thrown in his face and blinded him permanently. And it was a big story just because he was talking pretty openly about exposing Johnny Dio for his own labor racketeering up in there in New York. Um, and about this time, Bobby Kennedy, he was uh, working on a, a subcommittee with uh, Joseph McCarthy, of all people. Um, Kennedy haters, they kind of like to point this out, that there was a relationship between Joe McCarthy, the famous demagogic uh, communist hunter. Um, I think a lot of that kind of goes back to uh, the Kennedys and McCarthy's shared Catholicism. That was a big deal to them. Um, and this is actually where uh, Roy Cohn actually comes into the picture. Bobby and uh, Roy Cohn and uh, and uh, McCarthy, I don't think any of them particularly liked each other. But Bobby Kennedy, by all accounts, uh, I think early on in his career, he was really kind of anxious for something. Um, and I don't think he had found it quite yet. His father had gotten him that job um, working with McCarthy. I don't think he was particularly satisfied with it. Um, by the time the McClellan uh, committee was forming, which was, uh, it's called the Rackets Committee also. Um, there's a longer name for it. Um, but chaired by uh, Senator John McClellan from Arkansas, where they're going to look into labor racketeering. Uh, this, uh, the Johnny Dio uh, acid blinding uh, Victor Reisel episode, a kind of interested Bobby Kennedy because he had um, been conducting, like going along with like ride alongs with the NYPD and communicating with agents from the federal Bureau of Narcotics. Um, when he was starting to discover organized crime, Kennedy's I'm, you know, there was a famous quote about how they didn't really know what the great depression was until they learned it at Harvard. Um, so I think the world of uh, labor organizing and organized crime was pretty foreign to them. Um, like I was saying earlier, Bobby, he I think he was very anxious to find something and to make his own kind of uh, mark in society. Um, so he something about uh, prosecuting gangsters really appealed to him. Um, it is funny because uh, if we're going to get into the uh, obsession, what was, uh, you know, Kennedy and Hoffa's, I would say, mutual obsession with each other. Um, I think Kennedy he saw uh, this kind of moralistic view of uh, why would somebody be corrupting labor unions, which is supposed to benefit and protect working people. Um, so I think that was kind of a big thing in the back of his head. Um, funny enough, in the Evan Thomas uh, biography about Bobby Kennedy, um, and a couple other people have pointed this too, um, they kind of hint that when he was really uh, doing these uh, NYPD ride-alongs and working with Federal Bureau of Narcotics uh, agents. Um, they speculate that he was uh, perhaps engaging with it a little more than he should. Um, it's hard to f find the truth on that. The Kennedys are used to be at least very divisive as far as people who love them and people that hated them. Uh, but anyway, so... <clears throat> when the Johnny Dio story kind of comes to light, there was a uh, journalist in Michigan named Clark Mollenhoff, who uh, he himself wrote a book about Hoffa. It's called Tentacles of Power. Um, 
He also, being from Michigan, he also wrote a book. I haven't read it, but I've seen it. And I almost bought it. It was, uh, it was about George Romney, Mitt Romney's father. And it was called like a, a Mormon president, question mark, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but anyway, Clark Molinoff had pitched to uh, Bobby Kennedy. He said, you know, you should look at this guy, Jimmy Hoffa, back in Detroit. Uh, you know, I think it, it'd be worth your efforts. Actually, at first, uh, Kennedy had dismissed it. Um, but by the time the story came out about uh, the acid attack and the blinding of the labor columnist, Victor Reisel, it kind of made... <laughs> Uh, it it, it kind of interested Bobby because at that point he had already kind of uh, educated himself on organized crime and uh, the uh, funny enough I think it's worth pointing out at this point here when I mentioned the Federal Bureau of Narcotics the uh, FBN um, a lot of people probably know this maybe some don't but uh, that J Edgar Hoover had very famously dismissed that there was such a thing as organized crime so really the <sighs> really the only people that had actual comprehensive intelligence and information on the mafia was the federal bureau of narcotics. As a matter of fact, I think one of the uh, hiring, it was a plus if you were Italian, if you could speak Italian and uh, Sicilian dialect, that was a big plus. If you were, uh, they were looking for, for agents for the federal bureau of narcotics. Well, in curiosity, do you think that some of the animosity might have come from uh, Joseph P. Kennedy's uh, prior uh, dealings in the underworld? It, it kind of depends on who you ask when we get into this area. Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, the, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, uh, pretty much known as a reactionary, um, famously was uh, had to step down his ambassadorship to the for uh, for the UK because he was a little too openly uh, pro-fascist, uh, expressing Nazi sympathies. Um, the organized crime connections with Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., um, believe it or not, are actually really pretty up, more up for debate than people think. Um, some people, I know um, James Eugenio, who runs uh, Kennedys and Kings, and he wrote the book uh, Destiny Betrayed, um, He's pretty steadfast in saying that there was absolutely zero organized crime associations with Joe Kennedy during Prohibition. Um, then again, others say, no, he absolutely was involved, uh, particularly with the Bropman family in Canada, um, the Seagrams, uh, stuff like that. I think I mentioned earlier, you know, Kennedy, the Kennedy family specifically, they used to it used to just be so you either really loved them or you really hated them. I don't know. I mean, where do you stand on on this particular topic, uh, Steve? Well, to me, uh, JPK, Joseph P. Kennedy, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, mafia connections. And that mm -hmm. can actually be pretty easily substantiated, even without getting into prohibition, when you simply look at, A, the origins of Hollywood, and B, his dealings yes. during the early years. Because effectively, the early studios were basically criminal syndicates in and of themselves just to give you guys <laughs> yes. an example of this you can take keystone studio uh the head of that was max Sennett, the famous actor director and producer uh in his biography autobiography the king of comedy Sennett overtly acknowledges that the two financiers behind keystone charles obaman and i believe it was adam cassell 
uh, were actually bookies at the time that they gave him the money to start up Keystone Studio. So already from the beginning, the funds for this are coming from illicit gambling rackets in New York City. When Senate set up Keystone, he ended up having L.A.'s most celebrated early drug dealer, a fellow who's known as the Count, running shop in Keystone. He sold heroin and cocaine to many of the major stars that overdosed and quite on an extensive level. Some of his customers included, uh, oh gosh, Mabel Norman, oh uh, God, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the first major actor to overdose now. Walter Reed, I think, possibly in a quite a few others. i believe so yeah uh and then on top of that uh there were quite a few cynic girls uh his famous bathing beauties who turned up and <laughs> some actresses at keystone who turned up in various honey pots one of the most notorious was Judith harman who uh tried to uh blackmail a local automobile dealer an owner of a automobile dealership uh by accusing him of statutory rape um, you know, and again, this was pretty common practice of all the studios back then. But in the case of Max Sennett, uh, there was a lot of this kind of stuff going on. Open drug trafficking, these sort of glorified honeypots. Uh, there's obviously been rumors for years that there was potentially also pornography being filmed at his studio and some of the other ones that was in turn also being used for blackmail. But as this relates to uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, Specifically, um, a big part of why he had to get out of Hollywood is because of the affair he was having with the actress Gloria Swanson. Uh, yes, yes. Swanson had actually also gotten her start as Max in a bathing beauty. It's kind of coincidental that a man who has many of his uh, assorted actresses and models to <clears throat> these uh, sex traps happen to been a former colleague of the actress that drove joseph p kennedy out of hollywood and i should point out this uh was coming on the top of the the Pantag uh, pantages scandal mm -hmm. uh, this was the owner of the famous film chains uh essentially as kenneth anger claims i should say uh joseph <laughs> and kenneth anger is pretty knowledgeable about hollywood gossip despite what you may hear uh, Joseph P. Kennedy tried to have Pantages framed for statutory rape, uh, which eventually fell apart in court after, I think, three separate trials. So there was a lot of brutality, let's just say, going on in Kennedy's uh, foyer into the movie industry alone. I mean, all of these studios had links to various criminal syndicates. And mm -hmm. into the 1950s i mean you have like a case again with like joseph mccarthy uh one of his major backers was louis mayer and mayer had originally brought the purple gang actually um into yes. hollywood to run gambling gambling establishments high stakes pokers games and that type of thing for a lot of these studio moguls uh in fact the legacy of this more or less still continues to this day but that's another topic but you know, again, there was a lot of these connections with the early studio heads. So even getting into something like that, you had to have some kind of contacts, in my estimation, in the underworld to really approach an industry like that, because it was so tied in with criminal rackets to begin with. I mean, I would imagine that in the case of Keystone, a major reason why the studio was founded by these bookies is because they were looking for a way to launder money. And certainly there's been a considerable amount of evidence for years ever since. And Hollywood has been used as a money laundering machine. So 
Yeah, I think that people who want to try to claim that this has been exaggerated and joked to Pete Kennedy and his mob connections are just frankly deluding themselves. I mean, <laughs> just having studied his interactions with Hollywood alone, I mean, this was really brutal tactics being used by both sides, and it has all the hallmarks of a gang style war, basically. You know, and I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you uh, said all that. Um, I am. I had read the uh, the the Carrie Bocamp book, uh, Joseph P. Kennedy's Hollywood Years. I read that one a while back. Um, I um, I would probably agree with everything you just said. I think the only reason I kind of buckled up about the um, direct uh, link, as far as the organized crime specifically, especially later, if we want to get into um, the influence on the 1960 election. Kennedy's, uh, John Kennedy's uh, associations with Sam Giancana, all that. Um, I tend to shut down a little bit when we get to that topic, mostly because I tend to find it's, um, you know, is this any that different than any other particular people? I, I, maybe I'm thinking of the womanizing aspect of it. Um, not to say that I'm condoning it, but, you know, people focus on it with Kennedy. And I, you know, I always just can't help but think like is Kennedy, the only womanizing president <laughs> like if that if that makes any sense uh, no i agree that i'm glad you mentioned the uh those elements of the studio systems um the legacy of organized crime i would probably say the way it's whitewashed particularly in uh, the movies uh we can pretty much go straight back to what you were talking about um specifically organized crimes influence on the the movie studio unions um well, there were no unions really to speak of for years and years. And I mean, again, that was, you know, again, intertwined with a lot of the, the relations that the studio's heads had with uh, organized crime elements. Um, another one that I thought of too, Johnny Roselia had been up in the Chicago yeah. that had been going out yes. since I think the 20s as well. And um, did, yes, yes. did he have the JFK have the same mistress at one point? <laughs> uh, Judith Campbell Exner. Uh, yes. Um, she seemed to be the mistress of well, quite a few people, actually. Roselli, yeah, she wasn't Giancana. alone. I mean, there were there yeah. were others, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I know Roselli also, I think, had ties, though, to Sinatra and some of these other people in the Hollywood scene. But he was another guy, I mean, who had been active in a lot of the, you know, in the really the very early days of Hollywood, again, with a lot of these gambling circles and so forth. And you kind of see the progression of that continuing all the way up to the Kennedy administration. I just it's something I've been looking at recently, and it's really quite <laughs> fascinating. And I think an aspect of the family, just their general interactions with Hollywood that's been uh, sadly overlooked because it's utterly fascinating no no you're no you're yeah absolutely correct um i'm glad you mentioned roselli i mean he plays a a relatively big part in the, the saga that we're talking about today um uh actually kind of yeah, tangentially related uh to roselli um a lot of what i was referencing um it was a back in the um Roselli had actually he had ended up uh, going to jail for trying to shake down a, a movie studio, um, <laughs> movie studios. Um, it was around this time, actually. As speaking of Ronald Reagan, he had um, kind of like Reagan's whole political ascent, I guess, kind of went on the back of uh, Lou Wasserman and Sidney Korshak. People like this, Sidney Korshak being uh, the Chicago outfits like fixer in Hollywood, um, and. Uh, 
Reagan famously had sided with the mobbed up unions and crossing the picket line um, when, uh, when he was involved with SAG. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's go into just build it back on track here with Jimmy Hoffa. Let's go <laughs> through his criminal conviction. So, what are some of the highlights of that? So uh, Hoffa had pretty much been in trouble quite a bit by the time he had become president of a uh, local 299 in Detroit. Um, he had been building the Teamsters significantly in Michigan. Um, eventually being able to bring several councils into uh, or several locals into the uh, Michigan Joint Council of Teamsters, kind of like the AFL-CIO, which is kind of a coalition. Um, it was at this time, basically, that the, uh, the Teamsters Pension Fund, which is one of the bigger points uh, in, the, uh, in Hoffa's whole story, um, Peter Dale Scott points to stuff in this direction um, <clears throat> in Chicago with the Chicago Wastelanders Union um, after the murder of two of its uh, officials. Uh, it basically turns, it gets absorbed into the Teamsters Union, which when it was the Chicago Wastelanders Union, uh, that's where the uh, Jack Ruby connection comes in. Um, when Hoffa um, when the, the Teamsters took over the waste handling, uh, Chicago Waste Handlers Union, um, this is where the figure uh, Paul Dorfman comes into it. Um, they basically, uh, because of the association with the Chicago outfit, Hoffa basically uh, brings in Paul Dorfman and this company that he basically made up overnight called Union Casualty, which uh, I believe they give the uh, pension fund contract to uh, basically like quid pro quo almost like no questions asked um <clears throat> so the teamsters by that you know they were growing pretty huge in michigan and detroit and um he's a pretty politically savvy operator um he has hooked up with uh, a pretty interesting character named bernard spindell bernie spindell a uh, uh like a wiretap expert and private investigator um he was pretty brazenly open about this, but Hoffa was already kind of engaging in sexual blackmail and stuff like this with uh, congressmen and legislators in Michigan. Um, there was actually a uh, a Michigan figure named Claire Hoffman who was already um, going after Hoffa for stuff that Bobby Kennedy would later start going up after. Um, Anyway, uh, just to condense it a little bit, uh, the first big thing is going to come when uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, sets his sight in on Hoffa after um, talking with Clark Mollenhoff, the journalist that he, you know, when he, when he pressed him to look into Hoffa. Um, one of the more interesting, so I would say the biggest starting point with this is uh, a a public relations lawyer for the Teamsters named Eddie Chaffetz. <clears throat> who was a partner of one of Hoffa's longtime lawyers, Edward Bennett Williams, who was also kind of a Washington power player. Um, they recommend that uh, Bobby Kennedy and Jimmy Hoffa meet each other for dinner. In a, it was going to be at uh, Eddie Chaffetz's house in, Was in the Washington, D.C. area, Virginia. With the McClellan Committee, Jimmy Hoffa, through a member of the Meyer Lansky Syndicate, he... Uh, finds a uh, private investigator by the name of John Side Chiesty, 
who he hires ostensibly to uh, be a spy in the McClellan committee. So he offers uh, Chiesty, I think it was a ten or twenty thousand dollars to uh, be a spy, uh, to, just to spy on Bobby Kennedy for him. Uh, in a really bad turn of events, Chiesty goes straight to Bobby Kennedy to uh, tell him what happened. So he basically becomes a double agent. Um, the day that I think that they finalize this agreement that Chiesty is going to be a double agent for Bobby Kennedy. Uh, this is the night where uh, Jimmy Hoffa and Bobby Kennedy have dinner at uh, Eddie Chaffetz's house in Virginia. Uh, and by all accounts, I don't think either of them particularly liked each other. A weird thing that comes up with both of them is both of them constantly trying to prove how tough each other is. They both, more than once, they both talk about physical fitness and how fit they are, trying to brag about it with each other. As the McClellan committee presses on, they basically set it up so Hoffa is, uh, uh, Chiesty is giving documents to Hoffa for cash. Um, and they're giving Chiesty just, you know, whatever document, throw away documents to feed to Hoffa. I guess you could say this is kind of like a entrapment. Um, and this is actually on camera. There's a primitive, um, you know, video footage of, Chiesty and Hoffa meeting outside of a hotel in Washington, D.C. And it was on the second exchange that they, uh, Hoffa and Chiesty, exchanged uh, documents for money that the FBI jumps and uh, arrests Hoffa. That night, there's a second confrontation between Kennedy and Hoffa at, uh, at the jailhouse, um, which, funny enough, I'm pretty sure this is real. It, it ends up with... Kennedy and Hoffa ch challenging each other to a push-up contest. This uh, episode, uh, besides being significant for that one, is uh, by the time when this gets to trial, <clears throat> Jimmy Hoffa, uh, the trial, uh, interestingly, for the time, there's four black jurors uh, for the trial for this uh, bribery uh, conviction. And uh, as a ploy to kind of sway the... Uh, the black juror members Hoffa brings in the uh, heavyweight boxing champion, Joe Lewis, to kind of pop into the courtroom, kind of act like he's just there to support his friend. Um, and uh, in a way, it kind of worked because it, Hoffa ended up beating this, uh, you know, this uh, bribery uh, charge. And... Uh, so many, a lot of people know it. it uh, it's like the parachute incident because uh, Williams told, uh, you know, an exchange between Kennedy and Williams. They said, you know, Hoffa, if, uh, you know, I'll jump off the state capitol building if you're not convicted. And then after he beat the uh, conviction, uh, somebody sent over like a parachute over to Bobby Kennedy, kind of as a joke. Um, but uh, it is an interesting twist. Uh, boxing famously mixed up with organized crime. Uh, like, I mean, forever, basically. Um, Joe Lewis, like a lot of people, a lot of uh, ex-boxers especially, was really not doing great after his uh, professional career. And it turned out that he had been on the Teamsters payroll. Um, they had given him some kind of job. Uh, I should point out the big connection being that uh, Joe Lewis is from Detroit. I think that was Hoffa's excuse was that, no, we're both Detroit guys. We're, we're old friends from Detroit. But uh, it was a pretty crass way to 
sway the uh, predominantly black jury uh, in that bribery trial. So that's really the first significant uh, big charge with uh, Bobby Kennedy and uh, Jimmy Hoffa. The second is um, gets a little um, basically it's known as the test fleet uh, trial. There was a uh, fake, uh, like a fake company that Jimmy Hoffa had started up, um, which he did this a lot. As a matter of fact, there's like 30 instances of this happening throughout uh, his career. Um, but he basically, long story short, starts a, a, a company on paper, which is like a truck leasing company. Um, and, uh, this is actually the uh, the trial in uh, Chattanooga, where during the trial, uh, a man named Warren Swanson uh, attempts to shoot Hoffa with what ended up being a pellet gun in the uh, courtroom. Um, I've heard maybe once or twice that there was something up with this guy, but really, funny enough, at the end of the day, there actually wasn't. He just he was genuinely a deranged person who... Uh, said that uh, he had a dream of God telling him to shoot and kill Jimmy Hoffa. Um, now, this time, Hoffa gets a little sloppy because although it was his lawyers were pretty confident that he was going to beat the case and he really didn't have anything to worry about, I guess he overreacted because his camp basically ended up trying to corrupt one of the jurors through their husband, who they found out was a um, in law enforcement Um so after he had beat that test fleet uh, trial in Chattanooga, it came out maybe not too long after that there was uh, jury tampering. So they moved the uh, trial to uh, Nashville. Now, everything we've said up to this point is pretty much standard across the board um, as far as Hoffa's biography and details go. Um so it's at the Nashville trial that this is where things start to go off the rails because it's during this time that uh, this is 1963. This is when JFK is assassinated in Dallas. Now this is where we get into all kinds of crazy things with um This actually kind of leads into the Jim Garrison investigation in New Orleans too, interestingly enough. There's a uh, Louisiana teamster named Edward Grady Parton, who Hoffa believes to be uh, part of the uh, Carlos Marcello syndicate in New Orleans, which he was by all intents and purposes. Um, and again, this is where things really start to kind of go off the rails, kind of in every direction, depends on what material you're reading and who you're talking to. Um it seems that the Bobby Kennedy's Justice Department is really putting pressure on Parton. Um, Parton ends up saying that Jimmy Hoffa and him have discussed uh, assassinating Bobby Kennedy. Uh, weirdly enough, they discuss talk. Uh, they discuss it in terms of shooting him while he's riding a convertible with a long rifle. Things of this nature. Um, Parton is the one who leaked that uh, the Hoffa camp had bribed the jurors in the Chattanooga trial. So Parton basically becomes a star witness to uh, prosecute Jimmy Hoffa finally for a 
Bobby Kennedy. Um, like I said, this gets very controversial. Um, interestingly enough, where the Jim Garrison investigation comes in, uh, through various sources, Jim Garrison during his investigation says that he can place Parton with Jack Ruby and David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's really pretty interesting. One of the last interviews Hoffa gave was to Playboy magazine. And uh, it's a really worthwhile article if you're interested in this terrain. Um, he actually endorses Jim Garrison and he says he's uh, Garrison is a smart man and uh, everybody should take seriously what he says. So I found that interesting that Hoffa pretty much endorsed the Garrison investigation. Do you, uh, do you yourself have any opinion on the Garrison investigation? Uh, I think Garrison was compromised um, just for a few reasons. But I mean, I, to me, it really goes down to um, a, a lot of the extramarital affairs that he had had uh, <laughs> yeah. prior to that, which were well known. And again, this isn't a moral judgment on Garrison. No or anything of that nature but it's you know but the fact of the matter is for a district or attorney especially one in a southern state to have that many extra mm -hmm. affairs in the 1960s like that would have been political suicide so that's something that could have easily have been brought up uh to take him down but then also just some of the leads that he pursued and i'm thinking specifically in regards to uh, Carrie Thornley, because this whole thing was yeah. really bizarre. I mean, A, I'm sure everybody listening to this knows Thornley was uh, the, one of the co-founders of Discordianism. And yes. the source that Garrison was using on Thornley, were well, one of the main ones uh, was this woman. I cannot remember her name now off the top of my head, but she was also a Discordian. And at the time when Carrie went to New Orleans in 66, she was um, uh, working with members of the Process Church at Final Judgment. In fact, she's the one who took uh, Carrie Thornley to meet members of the Process while he was in New Orleans. And this was... Uh, were you talking about Grace Zabriskie? Yes. No, 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 not Grace Zabriskie. That's... Oh, okay. She was the another actress. one in this circle. Yeah, she Yeah, she went on to play Laura Palmer's mother. And yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's another weird connection. But no, I think this lady also it had links to organized crime and stuff in New Orleans back in the early 60s. Oh, I know what you're... That's so funny because I think it was on Christmas morning. I was uh, on uh, Adam Go Rightly's uh, blog. And I was uh, just plowing through all his stuff on Garrison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I do. Know, yeah, I know who you're talking. I know. I know you're talking about her name. Yeah, I cannot remember yeah. her name now off the top of my head. But it's yeah. I mean, she was such a suspect character, and this was basically mm -hmm. Garrison's main witness uh, to Thornley being in uh, New Orleans, interacting with some of these figures that he was trying to link him to. I think all specifically, it was uh, him linking um, Thornley to Lee Harvey Oswald, because I think this lady, uh -huh. she had seen um, Thornley and Oswald at like a bar in New Orleans in like 61 or 62 or something like that, after Thornley had claimed that he hadn't seen Oswald since they were in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's just sort of things like that with Garrison's probe where you kind of like wonder what in the heck was actually going on with all of this. Because uh, he did end up pursuing just some really bizarre leads. I mean, I don't know if he was compromised from the beginning, if he was coerced into taking a dive on some of this stuff. I mean, I think he, you know, raised some compelling points, obviously, but I think at best it constituted a limited hangout. 
Yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I don't really have – I kind of have a neutral position on uh, Garrison. A lot of people identify him as just the crony of Carlos Marcello. It's really interesting. People really have zeroed in on the uh, uh, his angle about it being a, a homosexual thrill kill. It's funny because uh, actually in one of the early books on the Kennedy assassination, Forgive My Grief by Penn Jones – uh, he makes the assertion that Jack Ruby himself was a gay man, um, which I'll admit, I always did find it a little strange that a man like Ruby was a bachelor his whole life. Uh, I don't know why. That just always struck me as curious. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, I don't, uh, yeah, I, must, I don't know if I have a strong opinion, but I would probably agree with you. There probably was uh, some level of conversation, whether it was from Marcello or what, um, People have made a big deal about his emotional state. You know, Garrison's defenders, they point to his service in World War II. So I don't know. I know. Uh, actually, funny enough, uh, have you ever read A Farewell to Justice by Joan Mellon? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, I thought that for a pro-Garrison book, I thought that she portrayed him in not a great light. So I always kind of thought that uh, <laughs> if a pro book didn't make him look that great, then uh, I don't know what that says. Yeah, I mean, it's just the closer you look at Garrison, the more issues just kind of come up with that. I mean, no doubt. So, I mean, I think that's kind of one of the problems that so many people in the, uh, the you know, the JFK assassination camp have tried to put him on a pedestal. Um, I mean, yeah. along with the Kennedys themselves. I mean, again, that, you know, maybe they did try to do something uh, that would have benefited the nation in terms of their foreign policy. But let's not kid ourselves. I mean, they're an elite family, like we're saying, like any other. I mean, there's a lot of uh, suspect behavior. I mean, I think especially from Joseph P. Kennedy, but uh, some of the other stuff. I mean, for instance, like RFK did as the district attorney. I mean, again, I'm, you know, I'm not saying that he wasn't necessarily right in going after somebody like Hoffa or... Uh, Roy Cohn with the vigor that he did, but he really mm. tap danced on the Constitution and the process of doing it. I think that it it set a rather uh, questionable precedent, to put it mildly. No, that's correct. I, I did mean to touch on that earlier. Um, uh, I mean, pretty much early on, even starting from the early days of the McClellan Committee, RFK was really turning a lot of people off with the way he was acting and the way he was aggressively pursuing. Well, and funny enough, um, the uh, a lot of people were coming down on him in that they that he was kind of going directly after the unions and really making zero mention uh, about misdoings on the employer side. Um, there was oh and. Uh, are you familiar with William Turner, the uh, former FBI agent? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't read his yeah. book, but I've read Power and the Rights. Yeah, oh, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. I cite that one a lot, uh, which it said is a hard book to get a hold of. I, I have two copies, actually, which I'm holding on to because they're expensive. But, um, yeah, in, uh, in, uh, yeah, in his memoir, Rearview Mirror, he did consult with Hoffa about uh, the uh, – about Hoffa being bugged illegally. Um, a lot of people don't, might not know this, but uh, law enforcement technically couldn't legally wiretap someone until about 1968. So really prior to that, it was highly, highly illegal, um, which it sounds like Bobby Kennedy was engaging in some pretty dubious, to say the least, tactics to go after Hoffa. Um, 
Uh, well, to bring us back to Parton, I guess uh, the Edward Grady Parton. Oh, one last thing, though, uh, I wanted yeah. to quick. So the lady's name was Barbara Reed that I was trying to think of. This yeah. is Gordian and uh, the one who was hanging out with the Process Church at the time. Garrison was trying to use her as a witness against Carrie Thornley. So, yeah, yes, Barbara right. Reed yeah. is a very, very interesting character, <laughs> to put it mildly, as are most of the early Discordians. So... Yeah, like I said, there was definitely some questionable stuff about some of the witnesses that he was using in a minimum. But anyway, yes, uh, let us get back here to Mr. Hall. <laughs> no, yeah, no, I'd love to go down that road. Uh, yeah, but uh, uh, anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah, no, uh, there's no doubt about it that uh, Bobby was being pretty overly aggressive. I, I think because you had asked earlier, what was the, you know, what was the Kennedy's obsession with it? Um, I don't know that I can actually say what was going on in their heads um the closest thing i could think of is hoffa and rfk i just it seems that they both were just convinced that they were right (laughs) that's really the closest thing i can come up to um to give bobby some credit here um i do think that uh he did correctly identify the threat that organized crime was Posing uh, for America, um, as we you know talked about earlier, and most people are aware the FBI pretty much dismissed uh, you know a lot of the realities. As you know, you and I both know, Hoover himself was a pretty compromised person. Um, uh, he was in bed with organized crime in his own right. So, um, and it is it is curious that you know most investigations of organized crime really hit a halt after the McClellan committee which Bobby had basically left to um work on uh John F Kennedy's uh, presidential campaign in 1960 um one of the curious things um the Joe Valachi the Valachi papers the uh Genovese family soldier who um uh testified for the McClellan committee uh kind of like a Probably one of the first mafia, in you know, uh, what's the word you want to call it, snitch, I guess, to testify about the inner workings of organized crime. Um, I want to say Peter Dale Scott says this in Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, uh, that Valachi himself was being coached by Bobby Kennedy and the Justice Department for reasons we could probably we would probably discuss later or at a different time. Well, do you want to uh, get into? Uh, Hoffa's action when they finally got him convicted and imprisoned as a result of uh, the testimony by Edward Grady Parton where he basically says uh, I witnessed uh, Jimmy Hoffa pay off the uh, jurors for the uh, Chattanooga trial uh, that pretty much seals it and that's the time when Kennedy finally can say that he nailed Hoffa um, he was able to stay out of prison for a few years by just filing for constant appeals, but it was uh, finally 67 that uh, he's taken to Lewisburg Penitentiary, um, Pennsylvania. Now, um, at this point, he basically leaves the Teamsters Union to uh, one of its international vice presidents, a guy named Frank Fitzsimmons. Now, um, this is a pretty important part of the entire saga because uh, 
as linked to organized crime as Hoffa was, and he was very open about it, even in the Playboy interview I mentioned earlier, he is pretty open about knowing Meyer Lansky and Frank Costello and uh, pretty much all the heavy hitters. Um, he really actually did seem to keep them at an arm's distance. Um, the uh, One of the things that Hoffa did actually in the early 60s was he was able to rewrite the Constitution for the Teamsters Union that basically consolidated all the power to himself, um, which was one of the things that I do think probably made people very nervous. I'm sure it actually made the Kennedys very nervous um, because what that did was basically – all inner, you know, all commerce, all truck driving, you know, basically was under Hoffa's control. So if he decided to call a strike, then that pretty much just shuts down the economy. He never did that, and I don't think he even threatened to do it. I don't think people were wrong for worrying about all that consolidation of power. So Hoffa goes to Lewisburg in 1967. He basically leaves the Teamsters with uh, Frank Fitzsimmons. Um, and I mentioned all that consolidation of power and everything because Fitzsimmons, who I think was seen as kind of a fool, maybe he was making some Machiavellian moves because he basically kind of does the opposite and he absolutely decentralizes it. Basically, what he does is turns every Teamsters local over to like their own little fiefdoms, you know, basically. And he basically gave free reign to organized crime. Also, what's significant about this is Fitzsimmons... Uh, People start to point out that he's mostly interested in uh, political networking. Uh, the two people he becomes pretty decent friends with uh, would be uh, John Mitchell and Charles Colson uh, in the Nixon administration, which will play a, a relatively important part uh, a little later. Um, in Lewisburg, um, Jimmy Hoffa, he's uh, there with Carmine Galante, who is an underboss in the uh, Bonanno crime family, one of the five families of New York. Um, at this time in uh, New York City, uh, the Bonanno family was in uh, basically a, a power struggle. The boss, Joe Bonanno, was considering murdering uh, two other bosses, one of them being Carlo Gambino. Um, and I want to say uh, uh, Tommy Lucchese of the Lucchese family. Long story short, Joe Bonanno flees. Uh, they make stories about that he seems like he was kidnapped. I think some people have questioned if he was kidnapped, if it was just like a fake kidnapping. But either way, Joe Bonanno flees from New York and disappears for a few years. Bonanno ends up setting up shop in Arizona for the most part. And funny enough, and I might, I'll have to double check this at some point in the future, but we were talking about Johnny Roselli earlier. Joe Bonanno's son, Bill Bonanno, he wrote a memoir called Bound for Honor. I want to say that's the first time somebody implicates Johnny Roselli of being in the sewer drains in uh, Dealey Plaza and shooting uh, Kennedy from the sewers, um, which people have floated that around a lot. Um, I don't believe that, but uh, I want to say that's the first time that uh, comes out anywhere. So Hoff is in prison with Carmine Galante, underboss of the Bonanno family. Um the fact that Bonanno had fled basically and was basically retired in Arizona. He wasn't really retired though. Um, a lot of not a lot of people give this uh, a lot of attention, but I think it's extremely interesting if we were to get into the uh, parapolitical angle of the type of activity that Bonanno was doing in Arizona. Um, we probably get to that later at a different time. Um, 
So you have Fitzsimmons on the outside, politically networking with uh, members of the Nixon administration. You have Hoffa in prison. He decides that uh, he's going to f- align himself with the Bonanno family, which with Bonanno going down to Arizona, Bonanno basically forms his own alliance with the New Orleans mafia boss, Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficante in Florida. So there's the North versus the South, basically. And um, Hoffa chose basically the the South, the uh, Bonanno, Marcello, Traficante, you know, wing of uh, organized crime. Nick's, uh, Hoffa was basically sentenced to 13 years. He had gotten... Um, he uh, after the Nashville trial, he had been uh, he'd given another five years from uh, another trial in Chicago, where he was uh, charged with a misuse of union funds. Interestingly enough, Hoffa, although it doesn't sound like he liked prison very much, once he got out, he uh, kind of started like a um, like an advocacy group, uh, advocacy group for like prison reform. And uh, he, interestingly enough, he made a big deal about wanting to protect uh, homosexual prisoners being targets. Hoffa had uh, broken with most labor unions in the 1960 election when he uh, endorsed Richard Nixon. Pretty odd. Uh, most unions endorsed Democrats, but he had already had such a bad relationship with the Kennedys. He enthusiastically supported Nixon. Nixon ultimately ends up commuting uh, Hoffa's sentence. Uh, he really only serves like five and a half years of what was supposed to be a 13 year sentence. Actually, really interestingly enough, another, I think really the only other person Nixon pardoned was actually also a New Jersey mafia figure named Angelo DiCarlo. Obviously, the, the famous thing about the uh, pardon that Nixon gets to Hoffa is that it, as a stipulation, Hoffa is barred from participating in any union activity until the year 1980. As I mentioned earlier, Fitzsimmons had already been networking with John Mitchell and Charles Colson. I feel pretty comfortable saying the mafia was, uh, they were behind Nixon uh, in 68. And as a matter of fact, actually, Sam Giancana, I want to say in 1960, he said that he liked Nixon. I think Nixon's organized crime ties are worth looking into. Some people trace it back to uh, Mickey Cohen, one of his early lawyers, Murray Chotner. Uh, was an organized crime fixer in California, Nixon's friend. Some people know about him, B.B. Robozo in Miami. So Nixon, uh, a pretty mobbed up president in his own right. A lot of people assume that Nixon pardoning Hoffa was kind of returning the favor for Hoffa's support of Nixon in 1960. But people have kind of surmised that the situation for organized crime at the time with a lot of the uh, internal conflicts like we were talking about earlier with the Joe Bonanno wars. I think that they were interested in making sure that Nixon running on his law and order campaign, they didn't want to inflame that. I don't know that I buy that theory, but um, they, uh, that's what a lot of people have kind of written about and pointed to. Either way, Hoffa gets uh, pardoned in uh, 1971 on Christmas Eve. And he pretty much hits the ground running from there, making it known that he wants to regain the presidency of the Teamsters. Fitzsimmons had actually, kind of similar to Lyndon Johnson, who uh, assumed the presidency after Kennedy's assassination, 
but he would go on to actually win the election himself in 64 against Goldwater. Fitzsimmons basically had done the same thing. He had assumed the role of the presidency, but then he actually did later actually win uh, uh, Teamsters' presidency. Um, and then this is basically the point where things really start to take a turn much, much more for the worse for Hoffa. Um, I will say uh, in his autobiography, Hoffa talks about RFK's because uh, uh, RFK had been assassinated while Hoffa was in prison. Um, he basically said he kind of felt nothing about it. It's curious in that um, as far as Hoffa's links to uh, JFK's and our, well, JFK's assassination, as much animosity as uh, they had for each other, there was a plot that actually was discovered by a, a teamster in Puerto Rico. Actually, the teamsters actually have jurisdiction in Puerto Rico. It was a teamsters official down there named Frank Chavez, who was making really pretty credible claims that he was going to assassinate Bobby Kennedy. As it turns out, uh, Hoffa was the one who personally told him not to. And I think Chavez surrendered the pistol he was going to use to Hoffa. So I don't know what that says in the long run, um, as far as what Hoffa's involvement was with any of the assassinations. Let's start par- uh, pulling back the parapolitical onion a little bit more. Um, so sure. about some of Hoffa's ties to drug trafficking. Earlier when we started, uh, I mentioned the um, Sicilian-born gangster, uh, Frankie Coppola. Coppola had actually been, I think on the books he's known as, uh, he's involved in human trafficking, he's involved in drug trafficking, he's involved in uh, labor racketeering. Um, He had been deported um, in the 40s at a pretty curious time, not uh, similar to around the times when most of the big names, uh, but uh, when Luciano, when uh, lucky Luciano had been deported um, to make a long story short, they had set up a pipeline of uh, narcotics of heroin trafficking that basically went to Montreal from where it would go to Detroit and also to uh, New York city. Um, the direct Hoffa uh, link to this, is the two main uh, narcotics traffickers in Detroit or the two kind of in charge of it were uh, two Detroit gangsters named uh, Rafael Cesarano and uh, John Priziola. Um And Hoffa, as a way to give them cover, they um, he had basically set up a paper local for them. I think it was uh, Teamsters Local 576 or... But he basically set up a fake local to shield their um, importing the uh, heroin from uh, Montreal. Um, and, a, and another note, Coppola, while he was in Italy, I read that James Jesus Angleton uh, was the one who had him brought over back over to Italy. Um, that seems a bit fantastic to me. But then again, Angleton, I guess he was in Rome. Uh, he was at the Rome office. Um, and this is kicking up around the time of uh, the uh, 1948 Italian elections. Um, you probably are familiar with the the tentacles of Gladio getting into this territory. Uh, the Vatican was pretty terrified that the uh, Communist Party, which Italy had probably one of the bigger 
communist parties outside the uh, Eastern Bloc. Um, and they were pumping, you know, I'm sure you know uh, how much propaganda and how much chicanery into swinging the uh, election away from the communists to the uh, Christian Democrats. Um, it's pretty well documented that Coppola and a, another actually pretty, uh, are you familiar with the uh, the Sicilian, I guess they call him a bandit, uh, Salvatore Giuliano? Uh, vaguely. Uh, what was his connection specifically? He basically ended up being like a uh, like a thug for the fascists and mafioso in Italy. So, uh, as far as I know, Coppola and uh, Giuliano had teamed up and uh, basically became like a death squad um, in the context of the uh, the 1948 election on the side of the Christian Democrats. Um, there's a famous story about which, funny enough, there's a extended scene from The Godfather where they make an allusion to this, where the Giuliano and Coppola basically uh, ambushed a uh, group of uh, Italian communists who were marching on their way to a May Day ce uh, celebration. Yeah, there's an extended scene in The Godfather where they kind of make an allusion to that, which funny enough. Um, so yeah, that would be the uh, the direct line, and that Jimmy Hoffa seems as he was at least providing the cover for the um, heroin trafficking from Sicily that from the pipeline you know, which went to Montreal and then down to Detroit. Did Hoffa have any additional connections to Gladio? No, not, not as far as I know. All right. With all these factors in mind, can you take us through the forces behind his disappearance, Hoffa's disappearance, that is to say? One of the things that I guess I will say is that it's not surprising at all that, you know, he was murdered i know i think one of the more things that people find interesting about this is that they never found his body um honestly i think that's just luck on the part of uh his killers some people have actually tried we're referencing johnny roselli a lot uh people have kind of linked the murders of Gian, uh, sam giancana johnny roselli and jimmy hoffa together giancana He's uh, murdered in his home before he's supposed to testify for the uh, uh, the House Select Committee in 1975. Hoffa disappears in 75, but he's basically murdered. Johnny Roselli, he does testify. By the way, as far as I know, says, uh, when he says House Select Committee, that's the House Select Committee on Assassinations and something else. But this was the one that they did in the mid 70s where they started yes. the CIA involvement in um, JFK's assassination. It was also where eventually the MK Ultra stuff started to come to light. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, the Church Committee is kind of the broad term. There was two others. There was the Pike Committee and then um, the Rockefeller Committee. Uh, committee um but yeah all pretty much comes out of the church committee uh so giancana is murdered in his house in 75 hoffa's murdered in 1975 and johnny roselli who had testified but as far as i know nobody actually knows what he said um earlier we talked about judith campbell the uh, mistress of giancana and sinatra and kennedy uh she had testified also uh but after Roselli's death, it was just a year after Giancana and Hoffa's murders, he's found murdered. Uh, he's found hacked up in an oil drum floating in a Biscayne Bay, which, um, curiously enough, is where one of Richard Nixon's famous properties is. I don't know if that's relevant. I thought I'd mention it. <laughs> um, 
people have linked the three together. I know they've hinted that Hoffa, they want, they definitely wanted Hoffa to testify. I don't believe a subpoena was ever actually handed down officially. Um, away from that, um, the suspicions would have been that it's speculated that Hoffa was involved in facilitating arms trafficking in the for the Bay of Pigs. Um, people have that called that into question. It comes from a uh, Chicago outfit gangster named uh, Charlie Cromaldi. Um, people have found his testimony rather dubious. But um, away from the intrigue surrounding the Bay of Pigs and the church committee, we were talking about earlier, there was that power struggle. Frank Fitzsimmons had assumed you know, leadership of the Teamsters Union. Uh, organized crime found him much more tolerable to work with because he pretty much let them do whatever they want. When Hoffa, he gave them a fair amount of freedom, but he really was not as much of a pushover. Hoffa really starts making pretty loud sounds about how he's going to take back the union. Um, similar to the possibilities of, that he was involved in, um, deep politics with uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion. Um, people are starting to get nervous that Hoff is going to talk. He's actually relatively open about talking. Um, people in Detroit are pretty convinced that Hoffa was had become an informant um, at some capacity. Um, others have disproved that, saying that there was actually no documentation. Um, you and I know that doesn't always actually mean something, though just because it's not actually documented somewhere. Um, but um, Hoffa, it doesn't, he, yeah, he had a lot of reasons to, you know, he had it coming from a lot of different directions, uh, to say the least. Um, the uh, When he was in Lewisburg, he was... Uh, during time with a, a New Jersey Teamsters uh, president named Tony Provenzano. Um, they had initially been allies. Uh, they got into a disagreement in prison. I've heard conflicting stories of what it was. Some people say it had to do with Teamsters business. Other people say it was something pretty mundane. It uh, basically erupted into a fist fight and they became sworn enemies after that. Um <clears throat> A lot of this people can kind of people point to the uh, Mitchell, uh, the the John Mitchell and the Charles Colson uh, connections with Frank Fitzsimmons. There's an interesting thing that I've only heard from one or two sources that um, the Watergate burglars might have been paid money that came from the Teamsters pension fund. Um, Fitzsimmons. I also noticed, and I've looked into this. A, few times i've only been able to find like references to it in a document um that uh as far as the dirty tricks of the nixon administration in the context of uh operation gemstone um kind of leading up to watergate it seems like they reference frank fitzsimmons being instrumental in helping to sabotage uh ted kennedy's uh po political aspirations um Am I trailing off too much here? No, good stuff, man. I did. Oh, okay. You, do you have anything else with the uh, different possibilities for his death? 
Um, it, it basically all comes down to, if I was going to boil it down, um, if I had to guess more than likely, it probably had to do with him wanting to assume control back of the Teamsters when Frank Finsippins was pretty much far more acceptable to people. I mentioned the um, alliance that Hoffa made with the uh, gangsters from the Southwest, the, the South and the Southwest. Um, that ended up not being great for him because organized crime in the East, uh, I would actually point predominantly to uh, Tony Salerno, fat Tony Salerno, boss of the uh, Genovese family. Um, he seemed to be kind of the broker on all of this. Um, the East Coast Mafia, essentially, they kind of won out in this regard. And um, it's widely accepted that uh, boss uh, in the uh, Pennsylvania area, Russell Buffalino, or upstate New York area, Russell Buffalino, um, he's the one who officially take the contract out on Hoffa. Uh, Tony Provenzano, former ally of Hoffa, he he's also linked to uh basically pulling the strings there was one of the things that set up the the day that hoffa's uh abducted and murdered um was that there was supposed to be some kind of a peace negotiation between hoffa and provenzano um uh Pretty much, again, kind of like with the Edward Grady Parton scenario, uh, so many different writers and so many different investigators have different thoughts on this. Uh, I'm glad that we haven't mentioned uh, the movie The Irishman yet, uh, because I really didn't want to go there. But uh, <laughs> I actually, I thought it was a good movie, but uh, the book that uh, that's based on is really pretty dubious. Um, there's actually far more interesting things about the protagonist of that story um, that have nothing to do with this we can talk about later but um basically it seems that uh hoff is supposed to have a meeting with tony provenzano in detroit mediated by members of uh, the detroit partnership the jackaloni brothers vito jackaloni and uh, anthony jackaloni <clears throat> uh hoff is waiting around at the Maccus red fox restaurant in suburban detroit um he makes a phone call to his wife. He makes a phone call to a guy named uh, Louis Linto, who's a uh, Detroit businessman. Um, he's seen getting into a car. Again, nobody really has quite narrowed down who the drivers are. Um, some people implicate that it was uh, a figure named Chucky O'Brien, who is kind of like uh, Jimmy Hoffa's uh, informal adopted son. Uh we recall earlier I mentioned his first uh his first girlfriend, Sylvia Pagano, which was his entrance into uh one of his entrances into organized crime. Chucky O'Brien is her son, uh her bio uh yeah, her biological son, and uh he was kind of like a protege of Hoffa's. Some say that he was driving the car that picked up Hoffa. Some say it was that guy, Frank Sheeran, who is the protagonist in The uh, the Irishman. Um, other people say it was Joseph Cirilli, who is the son of uh, another uh, Detroit gangster. Um, but that's 
like I said, like with the Grady, Edward Grady Parton thing, where things start to go off the rails, it's kind of where nobody can quite agree. All we know is he got into the car, he disappeared. Um, there was an eyewitness uh, who, one eyewitness said that it seemed as if Hoffa's hands were bound behind his back while they were sitting in the back seat and everybody was yelling. Uh, but other than that, and nobody can really either agree on the location. Uh, either so i wish i had more concrete stuff on this aspect of it um because i know this is kind of like the lasting legacy of what uh of the hoffa story is, is that they never found his body but like i said i would chalk that up to just honestly just good luck on the killer's part why is hoffa still relevant today it's interesting because uh i've tried to find some information on this i know uh, I know a handful of uh, people from Europe just in my day-to-day life. And I've asked them, you know, because unions are, you know, pretty powerful in other countries, you know, in Europe, Western Europe. Uh, recently, I was talking to a guy from Holland and I asked him, I said, you know, do, you, do unions, you know, in, in the Netherlands, do they have problems like this? And he said, no. And I said, well, why do you think that is? And he gave me a couple different answers. One of the things he's mentioned was that um, the way unions and the economies are set up in a place like Holland, um, there's just not really an opportunity to squeeze money out of it. Institutionalization of uh, organized crime, I think, was pretty much consolidated by Hoffa, which ended up running rampant throughout that chunk of history. I myself, I come, you know, my perspective, my politics are pretty much informed by labor politics. Um, I'm in a union myself. I'm, I have been active with organizing campaigns, you know, so I do believe in this. I do think um, people don't talk about Hoffa as much because I think some people like with me and my political positions, I think they are just inclined to think that it just keeps making unions look bad. Um, kind of like you and I were talking earlier off the phone of just um, coming to a reckoning with things, you know, where we accept, you know, the problems that there were, you fix it and move on. Um, it's very curious. You, uh, on your Vice-Up blog, you had done your uh, Goodfellas series um, where you talk about Atlantic City gangsters and that whole milieu. When did you write that? Uh, I think it would have been back around like 20, maybe 17 or 18, maybe even as late as 2019. I know it was during the uh, the Trump presidency. Right. Because I, uh, in kind of trying to prepare for this, I uh, I uh, went back and reread that. And you actually kind of touch on a lot of stuff that I would say is actually a byproduct of the Hoffa universe. Figures like Roger Stone are actually kind of on the uh, periphery of some of these elements. The Teamsters themselves, they took kind of, you know, they kind of had this uh, right wing bend to them, possibly, you know, forming their alliance with Richard Nixon. Um, a lot of people point to the uh, Nixon's Southern strategy as a way to um, attract uh, some of the more racial elements of certain voting blocks. Um, I think another thing people don't forget, but they might overlook is uh, the appeal to the white blue collar workers. Um there was the incident some people know about the hard hat riots where a bunch of union construction guys in New York city got into an all out brawl with um, anti-war protesters um, <clears throat> who a lot of those uh, hard hat 
riot veterans. They ended up uh, being guests at the Nixon White House at some point. I mentioned earlier uh, The Irishman, which is based on the book I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brand. The guy in that, Frank Sheerhan, who, um, who was real and he was in Hoffa's orbit, but pretty much by almost every account except for that book, he was not really a heavyweight of any kind. But um, Lyndon LaRouche, um, who I'm, you're familiar with, I'm sure, um, he had kind of set out to make an alliance with the Teamsters um, kind of after Hoffa's reign. Um, and uh, they took up like the plight of a bunch of uh, Teamster officials, one of them being Frank Sheeran, when they were getting into all kinds of legal trouble with um, uh, criminal conspiracies, bribery, stuff like that. Um, and uh, there was actually large portions of uh, Teamsters that uh, came out in support of uh, U.S. Labor Party candidates. That was uh, the LaRouche, uh, the LaRouche political party. Um Funny enough, nobody really talks about this. James P. Hoffa, who is Jimmy's son, who uh, became president of the Teamsters Union for quite a long time. Um, he was actually pretty close with Pat Buchanan, who uh, it was floated that James P. Hoffa, Hoffa's son, was going to be uh, Pat Buchanan's running mate in 2000. Um, curiously enough, that, 2000, that Pat Buchanan's 2000 presidential campaign was going to be... Uh, uh, one of the campaign strategists was was Roger Stone. Another one was another LaRouche activist named uh, Lenora Falani. Um, so yeah, um, I would recommend people check out your uh, your Goodfellas article up on or uh, uh, work up on Vice up uh, the first part specifically, getting into that uh, milieu of the New Jersey and the Philadelphia mobsters in Atlantic City. Uh, I would say that's a direct byproduct of the alliances that Jimmy Hoffa had a large hand in creating. And uh, yeah, look where that got us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as uh, an added bonus here before we sign off, uh, you described to me a connection between Hoffa and one of the litany of the pseudo orders of St. John um, that basically proliferated throughout the Cold War and are still with us today. So what was this particular group and how was it related to Hoffa? Uh, I'll hesitate with saying that a lot of the stuff involving the actress Marilyn Monroe and uh, her relationship with John and Robert Kennedy, uh, I think it's kind of, it gets into some weird areas. The uh, Once in a while, I would take a detour into the Black Dahlia murders, which I found kind of interesting. I see a lot of weird uh, parapolitical intrigue in that case but the fact that it crosses over with kind of Hollywood lore I think kind of muddies a lot of the waters uh, in preventing it from being a uh, you know looking at it from like a perspective that like you and I would um, I think the Marilyn Monroe's death I think kind of gets into that same territory um, Hoffa being a pretty avowed enemy of uh, the Kennedys uh, he had gotten in touch with a private investigator in Hollywood named Fred Otash. Uh, are you familiar with him by chance? I think I've uh, I crossed his path occasionally, but I'm not super familiar with him. That's okay. He um <clears throat> he was like a, a private investigator uh, of the stars, basically. Um, 
uh, Hoffa had approached him. And uh, funny enough, when one of the Democratic conventions in Los Angeles was going on, uh, Hoffa was actually working with Otash to set up honey traps to potentially uh, entrap John F. Kennedy in some kind of a compromising situation with a uh, with a sex worker. <laughs> um, at one point, and he talks about this in his Playboy interview, I cite the Playboy interview a lot. Um, I would highly recommend people check that out. You can find it online. Um, he actually talks he dips into the Marilyn and Monroe death. Um, he talks about having information on the Kennedys that uh, he describes as being so dirty and so sick that he doesn't feel like um, he feels wrong, uh, you know, bringing it out to the public. And that's why he didn't um, to be perfectly honest. I don't know if that's true. He, was pretty open about how much he hated Kennedy. So I don't know why he thought, I don't know why he would admit that. And then, you know, just sit on it. From what I can tell, the information he might've been getting might've been coming from a couple of sources. One of them being Frank Capel, um, who was a, uh, a real fr kind of a fringy guy. He was a, um, uh, known as a staunch anti-communist, um, and when I found out reading his obituary, he was um, a member of the uh, Order of St. John's uh, of Jerusalem, I want to say it was, the Knights of Malta. Um, and he ends up being the first person to write a, uh, uh, basically what, like a pamphlet about the death of Marilyn Monroe being like some kind of communist-inspired uh, uh, murder or, or something nonsensical. Um and also, interestingly enough, I found out, actually, both of these come from uh, who we referenced earlier, William Turner's power on the right. He talks about all these different right-wing groups. Um, the first officer on the scene at the Marilyn Monroe house was a guy named Jack Clemens, who was in a, a pretty right-wing and a pretty reactionary police advocacy group called FIPO. It's about firemen and police. Um, so, again, there's that kind of proto-QAnon you know, right-wing, uh, anti-communist, uh, amalgam that, uh, it's, it's like Hoffa was picking up on it in his pursuit of wanting to compromise the Kennedys. And that uh, Frank Capel was also a member of the, uh, the original order of St. John. This would have been the, uh, the Pitchell one from back in the day, uh, that later broke into a variety of different groups. Eventually, uh, Capel did break with Pitchell. I think, though, it was around, though, like 77 or 78 or something. Uh, so this would have been after the time Jimmy Hoffa disappeared. Mm -hmm. He started uh, issuing a lot of these pamphlets, I want to say, like in the mid-60s, about Marilyn Monroe into the late 60s. Uh, interestingly, he was based out of uh, New Jersey, uh, that was where he issued right. his later Herald of Freedom for a lot of years. <clears throat> but the um, the Order of St. John that he was active with around this time frame was the Pichel one that uh, was really closely connected to a lot of senior military officers at the time. And uh, I know H.P. Alparelli has also done some compelling mm -hmm. research to link them into the Kennedy assassination via Charles Willoughby. General Charles Willoughby, who was uh, MacArthur's spy master for the Pacific mm -hmm. during World War II. 
but he was one of the guys along with General Bonner Fellers, who oversaw psychological warfare for MacArthur, uh, General Emanuel Samuel uh, Lehman Samuels, who was a big no Lemanuel Shepherd, excuse me, who was a big Marine Corps general. Um, it's just a lot of these guys that were active in the SOSJ around the time of the Kennedy assassination, and this would have been a little after. Marilyn Monroe. So, I mean, it is curious because I think um, Capel was also active in the Birch Society at one point. Mm-hmm. Might have been Roger Morris, I'm thinking of. But there were a lot of people in this milieu around the Knights of St. John that were also pushing the, uh, you know, the whole notion that Kennedy, JFK had been assassinated by a cabal driven by Castro. <laughs> And uh, some of these other figures, essentially, it was a, this elaborate communist plot. But this is kind of in keeping, I would say, with uh, how th- a lot of these actors were operating in the 1960s, uh, taking a lot of these deaths where there are some peculiarities in it, and then trying to uh, spin a lot of these la- elaborate communist centric conspiracy theories around them. You know, that's uh, honestly one of the things because uh, I I tend to get too depressed just watching the news today. Um, so I generally tend to involve myself with the stuff from the past that happened before I was born. But um, I mean, I do see a pretty much a direct link from, you know, people in the Capel milieu to now. I mean, the Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby, I feel pretty confident in saying uh I think right now we're dealing with the Cowboys uh, as far as that uh, power elite. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been a, an interesting transformation, that's for sure. And I mean, really, we're still seeing this, I think, playing out now with um, uh, really the ongoing feuds between the Trump factions and uh, those kind of bagging the old neoliberal establishment. So, yeah, yeah and that's pretty, I was actually I was really glad to hear uh Peter Dale Scott, uh, with his book, uh, the American deep state. Um, he, uh, he's the one that said that I had always thought that, but I, I felt glad when I heard him say it, that, uh, he identifies, you know, these two elements of the deep state or his, you know, the real, for people that don't know Peter Dale Scott, he, I, I feel comfortable saying that he's pretty much brought that term the deep state to America. Um, I don't know. Would you agree? Yeah, he was the one, I think, who really started to uh, apply. Because for those of you unaware, the notion of the deep state actually originated in Turkey. That was sort of, uh, during yes. the Ottoman Empire, that was what was used to describe the kind of inner rulers beyond the royal court. Um, and then he was the one who began to apply it to American parapolitics, I believe, originally. Of course, now yeah. it's been badly abused by everyone under the sun. <laughs> It was a much more sophisticated yeah. when uh, Scott originally used it. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, it's uh, it kind of goes back to I think what I said at the very beginning when I encountered a coworker who seemed to know about conspiracy theory stuff. You know, when I and all I could think of was like, well, how do you know about that? Where, what source were you seeing? Just people who aren't quite sophisticated enough to pick up on the nuances i suppose yeah oh that's uh what happens in the posts was it literate generation or whatever they're kind of referring to <laughs> about just seeing like the youtube videos or something like that so uh it wasn't it ted gunderson who um i want to say it was ted gunderson who said this because he had done the circuits on uh 
you know, speaking in church basements about his, you know, theories that he was peddling. Um, and I think he ultimately said one day when somebody pressed him on it, uh, or somebody said something to the extent of like, yeah, nobody really predicted YouTube. Um, so that stuff that Ted Gunderson was saying wasn't meant for a, uh, huge, huge audience. Oh, they've certainly, uh, run with it though, nonetheless. Well, sir, it has been a fascinating conversation. It was a blast to have you on here. Um, definitely have to have oh, thanks. sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I was nervous, but I, you know, but I was looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate you giving me, uh, the time on your show. It's a pretty awesome show. Oh, thank you, sir. Oh, on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, as always, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat J. We were ready. My people there, they're feeling me. Down low, skin, roll more characters than Stephen King. Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell. I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Turn around, do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet the street, tell me that you good for it, you want peace, go to war for it, say one, two, three, Geronimo, jump baby, we gotta go, scream it with me, scream Geronimo, hands tied, blindfold, jump into that battle zone, come on baby, pick me up, out here in my wiki up, got y'all on some Never getting used to it Got bells of weed and catapults With Santa wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught a Realized if a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey, best believe They sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy If we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP DHS and Army Honeywell and L as UAVs, officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. 
you all on payday. See you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks. BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here. But that war administration's our whole civilization. What? 